the economic systems want to individualize things. And there's no economic system that holds things in common except for value and pricing. So the idea of the book is to flip that thinking and Uber can be worth what it's worth, but the atmosphere cannot be worth less. If you look at the other side and you think of where the injustice is, what, what greater injustice than to finally recognize, which is my, when my lights went on, that nature is the most significantly underpaid and exploited worker in human history. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Paula DiPerna. Paula is a strategic advisor and consultant who draws upon a diverse leadership background, having served as the president of the Chicago Climate Exchange International, which pioneered global emissions trading, as well as the president of the Joyce Foundation, a leading U.S. private philanthropy. Prior to these positions, she was vice president of the Cousteau Society for nearly 20 years and worked with governmental organizations across the globe to establish sustainable business and governmental policies. She is the author of the upcoming book, Pricing the Priceless. This conversation really pushed me in different directions, specifically in terms of having to think about the theoretical, the pragmatic, and the realistic, and what can be done and what should be done in order to rethink our relationships and reconceptualize our relationships with the natural world. There's still a lot that I'm processing. I'm not entirely sure that I have come down and found a position, and that's okay. That's the way it should be as we continue to ask questions, investigate, and really have an open mind in terms of the different points of view and the work that's being done in this area. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. And in the meantime, I will leave space for my conversation with Paula. Hi, Paula. Really excited to have you on the show. You bring in such a wealth of experience and knowledge and really looking forward to getting into your upcoming book, Pricing the Priceless. And the conversation space that we're trying to create here is different ways of conceptualizing our relationship with the earth, sustainability, action, and specifically coming in perhaps through the lens of finance. But I know that that's in itself reductionist. So there's many other places that we can explore. I'll start with who are you? And what story do you want to tell? Well, thank you for uh, your interest, uh, uh, Ben, and I'm delighted to be uh, with you. So who am I? You know, that's the existential question, so to speak, that everybody uh, uh, has to answer at some point. I mean, primarily, I'm Paula DePerna. I was born in New York City, and I still live in the Northeast of the United States, though I've traveled the world. And um, I think who I am is the sum of my memories. You know, life is only memory, and uh, it's the shortest experience we'll ever have. And so I try to um, make sure that every day adds to who I am. And so I guess from a professional point of view, I'm a writer primarily. I used to work for Jacques Cousteau, and when he signed, when he entered a country or had to fill in his occupation, you, you may your listeners may know he was one of the most famous people in the world at a certain moment. He invented the Aqualung or co-invented it, basically created the pub, you know, the, the profession or the, the, the recreation of diving and pioneered underwater filmmaking such to the extent that almost every marine biologist uh, above a certain age was inspired by him. And he was renowned. And when he would, uh, and he did a lot of different things, but when he would, um, enter a country and have to fill in his occupation, 
he would say a sailor because he had been uh, in the Navy, notwithstanding that he was one of the world's most famous people and environmental pioneers. So primarily I'm a writer. I love the idea of being a writer and um, I'm an activist. I'm, I'm, but I'm not a, I've done my share of demonstrations, but I'm an activist, sort of intellectual and practical activist, I would like to say. You have touched so many different parts and really would love to hear more about your experience with Jacques, Jacques Cousteau and how that has fed into what you're currently doing in your, in your ways of thinking and, and how that has been influenced on you. And so a way to segue into this is to ask you, what does learning mean to you? Learning is a process of living. Learning is, if we could remember learning to be born, you know, learning is a journey. It starts with a journey um, from an inside world to an outside world. And I think uh, learning is that process of, of, of acquiring information, of, of processing it, creating new information, and taking on the things that enable you to, to be who you are. So there are many facts that that involves, uh, and there are many ideas that that involves. So learning is, is, is a living process, I think. And in terms of learning being a living process, if you look at the course of your life, and you mentioned that you are the, the, the totality, I don't want to say the sum total, because it's not like it, they're, they're all kind of entangled and enmeshed your memories. But when we, when we look at the arc of your life from Jacques Cousteau all the way to the publication of the book, what are some of the seminal moments that are there? And what are some of the... Uh, moments and, and, and periods of, of your life as an activist that have shaped where you are, who you are, and even better, where you would like us to go from here and what some of the thinking that we could probably start to develop. So one thing I've learned uh, in my life is that, you know, you don't realize you're doing extraordinary things until they're done and you look back on them if you want to achieve things. Um, I, I feel that, you know, we're a little bit all too involved in process and, and, and maybe less focused on outcomes. So, you know, it, it's tricky to, to look back and sort out what was process and what was outcome. But there are a couple of things. Certainly, Cousteau, you know, I love being a number one. You know, writing, you put your own name on the material and, and it's your thing. But it's very important. And I learned that if you can hook up with another number one and you're the number two, and the number one really can get things happen, you'd be a fool not to play that number two role. So with Cousteau, I was the number two in the sense that he had access to anyone in the world and no patience for process. He would just go in, give an idea to a president and assume that it would be taken up or you know followed in some way, which, didn't happen often. So my job was to sort of deliver and, and make sure that whatever idea he tried to put out was was um, was acted upon. So a key moment in, in that period of time, I did two extraordinary things with with him, neither of which I would ever have predicted. My role, my role with him was as a writer and a co-producer and eventually vice president for international affairs. So the two things that we did were spontaneous. One, we were flying um, together and uh, reading the newspaper, and Cousteau tears a piece out of the, the International Herald Tribune, hands it to me, and says, we cannot let this happen. And I read the article, and it's about opening Antarctica up to mineral and oil exploration. 
Now, the Antarctica Treaty, speaking about, you know, where we should be going for environmental uh, concerns, Antarctica has been protected for decades by something called the Antarctica Treaty, which is a brilliant and beautiful uh, diplomatic achievement because there are so many countries, I think 26, that had claimed a piece of the Antarctic territory for various reasons. Somebody put a flag, somebody stepped a foot on it. And this treaty negotiated an agreement that those countries that had a claim, literally a territorial claim, would put those claims off, would never press them, as long as there was progress being made on how to divide the spoils of Antarctica, namely the minerals, possibly the minerals and the oil that might be there. And this sort of after you, Alphonse, you know, went on for a number of decades with nobody pressing and nobody advancing until this uh, process called the Wellington Convention. And the Wellington Convention was supposed to be the codicil to this Antarctica Treaty and um, uh, uh, set up a, pro a system where the, the, the people who had claims could get some benefit from these minerals. And so Cousteau said, this is insane. You know, you cannot open Antarctica to anything. It's, it's got to remain intact and sacrosanct. And even then, which you know, I'm talking now the early 90s, which is relevant for today because of global warming having advanced so much since then, but he had an instinct for it. And you didn't have to even have an instinct. You just had to have common sense. Here was this gigantic refrigerator, basically Antarctica. The world was predicted even then to be likely to be warming. And so he figured you can't disrupt the refrigerator. So we said, okay, we have to stop this. Now that was essentially getting in the middle of say a, a, a highway with cars going along at 40, 50 miles an hour about to get off to a left exit. And you go and, and stand there and say, no, 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 you can't get off at this exit. You gotta go back home. And so that's kind of what we did. So he, he jumped into action with um, the president of France. I jumped into action on his behalf with George Bush the first. We had a number of um, conversations at the Oval Office in which we tried to explain all this to the President of the United States. And we said, you know, you don't don't advance this this uh, discussion. The, the, the Wellington Convention has to be stopped. Now, there were a lot of staff people who had invested a lot in that process and, you know, thought Antarctica could be mined and mineralized safely. And Cousteau had been there and knew that you couldn't survive a storm there or, you know, an oil rig would be at great danger than oil spills and environmental catastrophe. Anyway, back to pricing. And there were a lot of environmental groups who were also uh, uh, anxious not to have the Wellington Convention. Many were anxious to have it because they thought it would be um, a protective measure. We didn't think you could ever have enough protection, so we didn't want it at all. And however, instead of going to the White House with this kind of environmental argument that we had to you know, protect the whales and so on, Cousteau said even then, Mr. President, the minerals there, we no one knows what they're worth. And as long as nobody's going after them, nobody will get them. And the United States is, is better off with those minerals in abeyance until such time as it's known, one, if anybody needs them, and until such time as they're worth going after because it was very expensive. And we managed to convince President Bush to back out of the Wellington Convention. Uh, we managed to convince uh, Francois Mitterrand also to, to back out. 
and the president of Australia. So those three presidents worked together to kind of scuttle this Wellington Convention. And in its place, and this is the point, maybe it took me a while to get there, but um, the main point is in its place, we put, we managed to get the negotiation of what is known as the Madrid Protocol instead. And the Madrid Protocol stipulated for 50 years as of that day, no mineral or oil exploration would go forward on the landmass of Antarctica. So we managed to get it off limits for another 50 years. And, you know, that was a real achievement. I mean, and a very important one, because imagine if oil and mineral exploration had been going forward for the last 50 years. So that was a thing I'm very proud of. It's very quiet. It's a background thing. But um, I love I love the fact that I was able to help with that. And uh, certainly it was Cousteau's uh, involvement. He put his finger on the scale right at the right time. And I'd like to say I helped him figure out, you know, what arguments, what to say to whom, how to get in. You know, we went all around the Congress, uh, uh, George Mitchell, even even Mitch McConnell <laughs> we met with at that time in his role as, uh, uh, I guess, senator, maybe congressman at that time. There was so much. Nobody cared about Antarctica because like, oh, it's way in the future. It's way far off. So we took advantage of that. Nobody's going after these minerals to protect them. And then the second extraordinary thing that I'm very proud of is when we did our Cuba expedition, um, Fidel Castro was, of course, everybody's uh, pariah at the time in the United States. In fact, the State Department asked Cousteau not to go there. Um, we went anyway. We made an extraordinary film there. And, and Castro was very enamored of Cousteau. He was a, a skin diver himself. And he, when he met Cousteau the first time, he said, I've been waiting for you for three decades, my whole life for you to come to Cuba and so on and so on. And we had free reign of the country. We were able to film and go anywhere. And uh, it was just extraordinary. That's a whole separate story. But um, we had been lobbied by the uh, uh, Cuban exile community to, to get some political prisoners out of Cuba at that time. And Cousteau said to me, what do you think? I said, well, you know, let's see, let's see, let's see how things go, who, who, how he responds. So anyway, long story short, we were able to secure the release of 50 political prisoners. I was the engineer of that. In fact, I'll never forget, I was in, uh, we, Cousteau and I were in Fidel's office the night that uh, Ronald Reagan bombed Libya. And Cousteau and I were sitting there with Fidel. Somebody knocks on the door, whispers in Fidel Castro's ear. He goes out, comes back tells us what has happened in Libya, and then more or less says, now, what were we discussing? Oh, yes, prisoners. We're going to release 50 prisoners uh, in the, in, 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 um, in the uh, name of Cousteau's, to honor Cousteau's visit. And um, Cousteau and I had kind of put our heads together before that, and, and he said to me, what, what should we ask for? And I said, well, certainly release is one thing, but secondly, that these people won't be harassed if they are staying in Cuba. And so Cousteau asked for that and I asked for it. And then somebody said, well, do you think, I said, they, they should be free to go to the United States if they want. And Fidel turns to me and says, well, you're the American, you'll have to figure that part out. As far as I'm concerned, they can go to America, but you figure out how they can get into America. So I did, and I connected with the right person at the State Department, and uh, we we wrote a hand. Cousteau wrote a handwritten letter to every single person 
I have the notebook that he wrote it in and uh, said, you, president has advised me you are free to leave prison and free to leave Cuba, et cetera, et cetera. So those two things were really pretty significant. And um, I could never have done them uh, without working with him. And I don't think they either would have happened without his personality and his style. He was really a Renaissance man back to learning. You know, he was learning all the time. He would say, if I knew why I'm going to this place, I wouldn't be going. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's that it's that discovery. It's the curiosity. It's the emergence. It's the surprises. That's really fundamentally what learning is, isn't it? If we if we already know what we're going to learn, that we've already learned it. It's it's not it's not alive. And so, what strikes me here is is uh, your work in preserving Antarctica, keeping it a safe space, really changing the conversation of the minerals and and the value there. This has played a role in your book and I, I, along the line of the story of your book in terms of pricing the priceless. Tell us a little bit about how that would be and, and some of the other thinking that has come in the meantime, but really also what your book is about and how that opens up different, different spaces. So the book is really about a mind shift, a flip, when it, from thinking of natural resources and nature as something around us or something to use, uh, from that to something that's an asset. And back to Antarctica, it's not only an asset, it's a cliche to say, you know, it's our common home, we hold all these things in common, but there's no, there's actually no economic mechanism. There's a total misalignment between our economic systems and this idea of holding things in common. The economic systems want to individualize things and there's no economic system that holds thing in co- things in common except for value and pricing. And uh, by that, I mean, there's, a, there's an agreement of what something is worth. You know, if you're buying a stock, that the price of the stock is the agreement of what the company's worth on a given day. If you go into a shop and you buy a T-shirt, the price tag is the agreement between you and the shop what it's going to be worth to have that T-shirt. And... Um, so pricing the priceless says that there are many things for which we cannot that we cannot price and these are also uh intangible things uh it, it, they can be tangible in the sense of let's call it you know trees those are tangible but the 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 um collective val- the collective role the role that trees play across our lives in so many different ways is is an invaluable role. It it cannot be captured uh, in the in say the price of cutting the tree and selling the, the timber. It can't even be captured in the table that you might make from that timber. There's an eff- ineffable quality to the to the resilience of a forest that contributes to this generation, the next generation. And so, how to capture that value that stat that 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 can never be eroded. And the book is about figuring out a way to to make visible these invisible values it's almost like putting making a philosophical theme uh into music that you can hear you know you translate an an, an, uh, something that's that's um not literal to something literal knowing that you can never capture it and so it requires a certain kind of thinking a certain tolerance for ambiguity and i'll just you know to come down to earth why in the world can we value say a company like uber which is convenience now exists worldwide, but is entirely dispensable 
Nobody really needs Uber. It was just merely a disruption of a conventional way of, you know, conveying people around. Um, dispensable, but worth billions of dollars to the economy. And the atmosphere, which is indispensable, is worth zero to the economy. There, there is just no logic in that. So the idea of the book is to flip that thinking. And Uber can be worth what it's worth, but the atmosphere cannot be worth less. And so the book sort of explores uh, techniques and, and ideas for how to get really the value of nature on the books as an asset so that ultimately it can, that it can be maintained as an asset as compared to use as an input. And so many people will ask, but doesn't that just commodify nature? Doesn't that just make it something that we can't touch, but that is still available because it is an asset for extraction? How do we get around some of this thinking? Well, that's why we have to have tolerance for ambiguity. It's quite true that it does, in a sense, commodify nature, certainly when it comes to water, you know, water markets and cap and trade car carbon markets. That's, that's true that it creates a, a commoditization in a sense. But if we don't do that, we get what we have, which is 100 years of you know, decimation. And um, no, no, no limits essentially. And what, what you know, very important people like Dasgupta, Partha Dasgupta, have called environmental depreciation. So we have to kind of walk the line. And you know, when you think about the atmosphere, it's only sixty miles high above us. That's the little bit of space that we have between us and disaster. And you know, that space for the last hundred years has been crowded by carbon pollution, greenhouse gases, willy-nilly. We just shoot it up there as if, you know, it, it was a, you know, free space. And it has been used almost free. And if you think about it in relationship to the earth, it's like a penthouse. So here in this penthouse, someone gave you the use of a gorgeous penthouse somewhere in, you know, the world with a phenomenal view of the sea and said, use it forever for free. And all you did with it was uh, take your dirty laundry and put the laundry in there year after year. That would be a tremendous waste and abuse of that of that privilege. And so we've been we've been doing that. And so it's important to understand that say, a carbon market doesn't commodify the space, but it puts a value on the scarcity of the space. So that if you're going to use a little bit of that space to put a ton of carbon dioxide up there, you better know why. And you better not be putting tons up there that you don't have to put up because then you'll be paying a price that's very high, in which case at some point that price will rise too high. And at that point, you will probably change your behavior. And the idea is to get the price so high soon so that people's behavior changes. Because back to the sort of learning aspects here, one thing that I think we can all say we've learned is that Weather changes, thick and thin, governments come, governments go, but money is still always around. People think in terms of money. Money is a language now. Um, we can't wait to ship it around the world faster and faster, Zelle and Alipay and all these things, just to move money around. So money is our current language, and if we don't use it for good, then it's going to be for bad. I uh, had a conversation a few months ago that really marked me. It was this idea that Money's a lot like the nutrition that we take for food. There's there's money that does your body good and money that um, actually you know could be quite toxic. And and it's about feeding the system just like we feed our bodies. It's it's about the inputs and the outputs in, in that sense. And I guess I guess the question I have for you as well is if we're going to put price or or 
on a, on an asset like forest. How do we deal with just the complexity of the ecosystem of the forest, of birds that may or may not be there, animals that may or may not be there or might migrate, of the the natural systems that it may touch directly, but certainly touches indirectly. If everything is connected, how do we kind of compartmentalize or put some kind of limits there in order to value something that is inextricable from the rest of nature? Yeah, well, that's a very important question. And that's why, you know, we probably need to redesign certain systems, but there have been economic systems. So for a long time, for decades, actually, there's been this science called um, of ecosystem services, where you try to calculate an economic value for a given uh, environmental process, call it water filtration or um, biodiversity. I mean, and, and Das Gupta's review, the economics of biodiversity says more or less you can never get to a price for biodiversity, but you can break that down. So this, this science of ecosystem services, which is a kind of environmental accounting, has evolved and has become pretty sophisticated. So you could you can speculate on, for example, let's just take crass terms, the value of a timber industry. If you were to cut all the trees down that you're trying to protect, what would the value of that timber be in today's market? So that's one number. Um, if the forest is near a uh, a town or a city or a village and people use water, you know, people need water, how, what what is the quantity of water and what is the cost of water that is is being being used near that forest because you can conclude that the forest is contributing to the water retention of that area because that's what trees do, carry, capture water and deliver it to the soil and the water table. If it's a, you know, you can calculate tourism, the value of biodiversity and, and being able in theory, in theory to attract people there. If you were to open up this whole forest to tourism, what would that be worth? And you can you can kind of come to a set of numbers that 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 are are corollary to today's values of the known processes that the forest provides, and that's kind of science. Um, in in Congo, I talk a lot about this in the book in a chapter called Off Limits. There's not only the trees and and in Gabon and 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 the last remaining major rainforest in the world, which is in the Congo. Um, I mean, the Amazon, of course, but the Amazon is no longer a net absorber of carbon. It's now a net net a, a producer of carbon. The the only remaining rainforest in the world that is net capturing carbon is in the Congo. And so really, those trees can never be cut. And also, neither can the land be cleared because under those trees is peat, peatland, which is unbelievably important, loaded with carbon dioxide for thousands of years. So if that carbon was to be released game over so not only are the value is there value in the trees in the congo but there's value below the ground in the oil that's below ground and so you could put a price even on that oil at today's per barrel price so take all these known quantities and what do you do you say oh gosh how can we pr protect it so enter finance and i'm not saying this is a, a you know a, a universal solution, but it's a very important experiment. There's something called the Forest Resilience Bond that was created in California. And the idea is, so let's say after you sum all those numbers, they're experimenting with this in Lake Tahoe, you sum all the numbers 
and you get to $100. You go to investors and you say, there will be $100 worth of benefit coming if we don't cut these trees down, if we protect these trees. And if you securitize those benefits now, invest $100 now, we can work on protecting these trees. We can pay people not to cut them. We can trim the forest and clean it up so it's not so subject to wildfire. I'm being very oversimplified here, but the point I think is, 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 um, is basic. And the beneficiaries of that forest protection, so in the case I gave, the tourism operators, the hydropower companies that may need the water for their hydro plants, insurance companies that don't want to pay premiums for forest fire anymore or want their premium, their, their not premiums, their uh, claims um, to be lower. All of these are beneficiaries of a resilient forest. So if you're an investor, you invest in this $100, you create the bond, you securitize this $100 worth of benefits, and you put cash up front that enables protection of the forest, and then the beneficiaries pay you back later with a premium because they have been able to reap the benefits of a resilient forest that if the forest had not been resilient, they wouldn't get. So the securitization of the, of the benefits up front enables the protection of the forest over time. And still you have a resilient forest. So basically it's money up front to get benefits later. And it's the same financial structure that is used for, for any kind of infrastructure plan. That's exactly how if you were going to build a bridge or, 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 or a new highway or a new airport, you would get money up front and build it. And then you'd have to maintain that asset as a piece of infrastructure. Um, and that's what we don't do now. We don't maintain nature as an infrastructure pillar. We, may, we, we use it up and we consider it a cost. So environmental protection is on the cost side of the ledger of a, com of a, of a country. And they're trying to minimize those costs all the time. Whereas if it's on the ledger side, the asset side, then there's a, uh, an obligation to one, protect, two, maintain, Three, you can borrow against it. Uh, you're, if, you're, if you're considered to have robust infrastructure, your, your credit ratings are higher. And if you can borrow against and you're considered to be a good, a good place to invest, then you get more capital investment that presumably you would then apply to the benefit of your people. So that's kind of the circle of it. And there are other uh, new tools like this bond that, that try to quantify those benefits. And this would be appropriate for those areas that aren't protected by say government law that aren't places that are reserved and that can be not touched it's it's the places that are vulnerable really we're trying to protect the places that are vulnerable that aren't yet under the umbrella of protection of the state is that correct well not necessarily because you know i don't know about you but anywhere that's under protection is also vulnerable it's it's first of all vulnerable to nature um say wildfire goes in any forest um and it's also vulnerable to cost cutting. You know, there's always cost cutting, the national park system, you know, begging for funds and so on and so on. So all of this can help both protected and vulnerable areas and presumably change the way we think of these, these areas so that all of them are more protected de facto, let's say. But cost cutting is coming after us. You know, cost cutting is... Is is, 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 is is drives economies and we don't want cost cutting when it comes to nature. And and so how, how what has been in terms of your your conversations and and the think that you have 
some of the arguments on any side of the political spectrum, uh, the, the, the points of resistance, what are some of the things that people might say, well, this is problematic for something that seems to be uh, a quite innovative uh, financial um, lever into the protection of some of the, the natural spaces? Well, the first, the first is a, is a, is a, you know, is a deep suspicion of capitalism. And I, you know, I've explored this in my head a lot, you know, capitalism has one purpose, which is to generate profit. That That's a fact. And so pricing the prices is going against that momentum, that inherent purpose of capitalism. And, you know, I'm not an apologist for capitalism. I know that it has been the it's significant cost of, you know, tremendous horrors, exploitation, colonialism, so on, ripping down assets, uh, rather natural resources, taking them from one place to another. It's an extractive process. So I'm not apologizing for it. However, it is an international norm at this point. And until something other system is put in place, which I am trying to flavor capitalism towards this new way, uh, capitalism is there. So there are people who will who will say that Paula, this is all very well and good, but you know, good money is never going to overcome bad money. There's just too much bad money in the world, too many bad actors, and all you're doing with this concept is uh, giving them a little escape route so they can green themselves from time to time. And, you know, that may be true, but but on that particular argument, I say, well, give me an alternative then. What's my alternative to despair and to disappointment and looking back on the last hundred years of so-called progress when conceptually I know that the whole industrial revolution was based on taking out of the ground fossil fuels, which are also precious assets. They're not, you know, just nothing. They've they've literally fueled human civilization, modern human civilization. They were down under the ground minding their own business for hundreds of thousands of years. We go in, dig it out, burn it willy-nilly, shoot it in the atmosphere. And now the next hundred years, we have to spend extracting it from the atmosphere and very likely putting it back in the ground. Now, how does that make sense? So what's the alternative to that insanity? In my opinion, it's to flavor the flow of capital and take all this money that the world is generating and move it from bad use to good. And if I take some barbs about, oh, being an apologist for capitalism, I'd rather take those barbs than do nothing. So that's that's one thing. Um, the the second thing is what the point you raised earlier is that you know if we're going to put price tags on a ton of carbon and you know call it an occupancy fee if you want call it rent whatever you want to call it you are commoditizing something that we by definition know has no price but again if we don't do it then the, we have the example we've done the experiment already you know the the alternative is just use it up willy-nilly so there again i say okay but you know you live with we live with ambiguities all the time people have children do they ever know when they have a child you know a beautiful experience how much that child's going to cost them do they ever think that that you know over over the life of a child it'll be thousands of dollars and people have children do they know if the child is going to be a bond or well now they can know i suppose but you know 
we, we live with ambiguity all the time. We enter ambiguity. We, back to your original question, who am I? I walk all kinds of ambiguities every day. We all do. So we, we can tolerate this ambiguity, I think, that while we know that we can never put the proper price on something, it's a beautiful idea, too, that, that we're always approaching. I remember when Vlachov Havel uh, addressed the U.S. Congress, and he said, you know, democracy, everybody talks about it like you can get there. You know, you can't get there. It's a horizon line. You can always only approach democracy. Well, you can only approach protecting nature. You can never properly, finally do it because we do depend on nature. And so if you look at the other side and you think of where the injustice is, what what greater injustice than to finally recognize, which is when my lights went on, that nature is the most significantly underpaid and exploited worker in human history. We paid nature nothing for all the work that it does. And, and so where do we get off on that? You know, how, how can we justify that? So I throw it back at people when they when they kind of cha challenge the commodification with that question. And again, you know, give me an alternative. And this goes uh, or reminds me a lot of this idea that we're trying to get some of these goals, these goals and these objectives. But as you mentioned, although although you started the conversation by saying that maybe we're a little bit too focused on process and outcome, I'm also thinking that the goals that we have will never be met because we're always walking towards that horizon and you never get to the horizon. It always moves forward itself. Yeah. And that's. That's, you know, that's the challenge of leadership to help people tolerate these kinds of ambiguities, keep going forward for common good. It's the challenge of the classroom. You know, you have kids in a classroom. They're all filled with different ideas and different ambiguities that they're facing. How do you kind of get them into a common vision uh, so that what they're learning, they learn somehow in common so that it becomes an intergenerational part of, you know, wisdom and knowledge. Um, so. You know, the approaching it all the time, um, I think, is a very wonderful, almost mesmerizing kind of concept, as long as people don't become too frustrated, in which case, you know, then you have a bunch of frustrated people who can't get to this beautiful idea. And that's where, as I say, I worry because we just don't have that kind of articulate political leadership worldwide right now. But maybe the next, gen not the next, maybe somebody will emerge. You know, you've got to have some kind of hope. What's next for you? with the book coming out and some of the implementation that comes with some of the ideas? Well, um, you know, I'm beginning to talk about the book as we're doing today. I hope to be giving, you know, talks around the world, maybe meeting with government people. Um, you know, my role in this is to synthesize and make all of this uh, ac uh, accessible to people. Um, a lot of what I write about has, has been discussed in theory for a long time. And I'm trying to show how it can be put into practice and kind of pick up these examples from around the world and put them all in one place or put many of them together. So that's one role. And then, you know, I just um, think I'm going to move to another topic at some point. And, um, uh, you know, maybe this is all I have left to say about environmental protection. I don't know. I don't know that, you know, there's a whole lot more that I have to contribute on the one hand. On the other hand, I like to think of being a translator, so there's probably some other things that I have yet to write and say. But as I started out, I'm a writer, so you know I'm always thinking about new ideas and novels and new books and things. But one of the um, most exciting uh, parts of, of of writing this book, I never thought it'd be so interesting to write about finance, to be honest. 
you know, I was one of those people who just never thinks I don't, you know, I, I mean, I'm not privileged. I'm not wealthy, but somehow money has always bored me. You know, it's always been just a means to an end. But writing about it was it really that was really a discovery. You know, that that finance is alive. It's in it, it to look at a tree and think it's doing nothing is an insult. You know, to look at a swamp and think it's doing ugh, swamp nothing is an insult to that land. Um, and to look at a, a you know a, 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 a swamp or a tree or you know anything and think wow that has an economic that's a, a shark swimming in the ocean is an economic engine that's exciting and that was a you know a challenge as a writer it was also an exciting and 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 a different way of of looking at nature uh, again not saying okay that shark's worth a thousand dollars but just a I don't know what that, sh that is an economic enterprise, that thing swimming through the earth, uh, through the water. So that, you know, I may, I may try to find ways to hang on to that. But, um, you know, the, I live in upstate New York and there's a, um, uh, a company there called Golden Paints. And Golden Paints produces most of the world's acrylic paint and for artists and other purposes. And now all so they produce oil and watercolor. And I learned, I went to a show there and um, learned about something called interference colors. And interference colors are, they look kind of semi-clear in the tube, but there's colors, interference green, interference blue, interference red. And what they do is they, they just refract all the light um, uh, and, and throw a different, kind of physics into the into the color you, you know like vermilion red interference red goes into that vermilion and, and shakes up all the 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 light that's refracted and that's kind of how i feel about this book that that there there's been all this common discussion about economics and finance and i'm kind of like an interference color and i kind of like that role that's brilliant listen paul thank you so much for your time really appreciate it Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to uh, hearing how this all comes out. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check out our website. We've got articles, resources, links to our partners on www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. And in the meantime, subscribe to this podcast. Leave it five stars. Pass it on. We really look forward to your comments. We love hearing from you. And really looking forward to our next episode. And Speak to you soon. Bye-bye.